After a lifetime of researching the dynamic and enigmatic world of light entertainment, I've decided to ditch my notebook and meet the people who inspire me. What makes them the people they are? How do they feel about the show business landscape in which they find themselves? And in a world where anyone can be a star, is there still a need for performers who have universal appeal? Come with me on a journey of discovery as I get a unique insight into Britain's favourite stars with a little help from my glamorous assistants. Yeah, well, I say glamorous, more like hazardous. And of course, we'll have a bit of fun along the way. Writer and journalist David Quantic began his career contributing to articles for the heavyweight music magazine NME alongside Paul Morley and Danny Baker before becoming part of the writing team on the satirical sketch show Spitting Image. In 1992, he joined forces with Armando Iannucci for the Radio 4 series On The Hour, before seeing the show successfully move to TV for the critically acclaimed The Day Today. In 1996, Quantic was reunited with The Day Today star Chris Morris for the controversial Brass Eye, and Morris's follow-up series Jam. I was interested to hear from the anarchist of popular culture and get his take on his career in entertainment. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr David Quantic. So, first question... You were an enemy at such a pivotal time for British music. Can you just sum up that period in terms of the effect that it had on British culture? Well, it was a weird time when I was there because we just had punk. So that had been a massive explosion. And then when I started, the enemy was starting to become a bit irrelevant. So I'll pass over that a bit. But then, just as I was getting quite old, getting into my 30s, suddenly you had this thing that you had Acid House, so you had all these drugs and dancing, but then you had guitar bands coming out of it. So suddenly the enemy was quite hip again. And then you had all the Manchester scene, and then you had Britpop. And it was really, I used to say that if, if white boys with guitars were in the charts, then the enemy sold. Anything else that it didn't. And at this point, people like Blur and Happy Mondays and Stone Roses were absolutely massive. So it was weird, because we were kind of their translators. You know, they do interviews, and people would buy it. And I think we got a bit self-important and everyone was going around taking drugs and having exciting foreign trips. And um, we're briefly important, but, you know, they got so important that they were more interested in meeting Tony Blair than us. So those days faded. And I got old and it became very depressing. (laughs) So I don't... Everything I say is going to end with then it got depressing. (laughs) So working alongside figures who, like yourself, would go on to define musical journalism, how did you measure up to your peers, including the likes of Danny Baker and Paul Morley? God, it was quite scary because they were really... Yeah, because A, I was a teenager when I read it, so they were, you know, they'd have been heroes anyway if they were rubbish. But B, they were really good writers, and it's quite strange. My cliche used to be that Enemy was like Cambridge for losers because there was a lot of really talented people who didn't quite fit in you know, who weren't going to work for the BBC or anything like that, who were a bit weird and not very good at socialising. You know, we were like kids in a Stephen King novel. You know, we didn't really have any friends apart from other people. So it was kind of scary. And then you realise that, you know, everyone's the same. In that, I mean, no one's as... The thing about people like Danny Baker and Paul Morley and Julie Birchall and Tony, these people, you know, who went on to be really famous in other areas, they had so much confidence and... You know, they probably come from interesting backgrounds. They'd had to struggle a bit. It's interesting. Most of the working class ones were the ones who went on. It was, you know, people like me who come from more comfortable backgrounds, who had parents with a bit more money. 
I think, you know, makes you a bit lazier. So these people were real heroes because they could write. It wasn't because they were rebels or they liked music. Some of them, like Julie Birchall, literally pretended to like punk so that they could write it. You know, she likes dance music in real life. So when I met them in later life, it was like meeting heroes when I met Danny and Julie, you know, who are quite scary people, but really nice. It was really more interesting to me than meeting the musicians that I liked because they had molded me. And even now when I write something, I'll think of someone like Charles Shaw Murray or Paul Morley or Ian Penman, these people who were, you know, it's always a surprise to me to meet them and discover they aren't millionaires because to me they are massive, important figures in my life. Then you made waves in the world of political satire and started contributing material to Spitting Image. How did that come about? And was there any correlation between the music and then the satire? Well, it was weird because the enemy at this point, nowadays things are a lot more corporate. You know, you write, you're told you should write this and you write this and you have a brief and you're not told to like the band, but it's kind of implied. And you only write about music. Like Q Magazine doesn't even have a book review section now, which I think is bad. But the enemy came out every week and there was loads of it. So I'm doing this gesture in case you've never seen what loads of it looks like. But yeah, there was loads of it and you have to fill it up every week. And it was like an endless pit, which meant there was a lot of room for, for variety. So you'd be doing stuff and you'd think, oh, I'm bored now. I'll do this article in the style of Flan O'Brien or I'll do this as a, a dialogue or a sketch. And so, and you know, the people that we mentioned were very funny. It wasn't, you know, the image of the enemy is often this kind of pretentious paper. These people were very funny, you know, they're very funny writers. And that was always important to me. So it's, you sort of mix the two. And because I'd love comedy as well, the only records I had before I was 16 were comedy albums by the Goons and people like that. So it wasn't, but it was easy to get reviews published. It was hard to get comedy made because you have to get it made on television. And then... I wrote some sketches and sent them to Spitting Image and they used them. And then it got mixed up and I started writing parodies of songs for Spitting Image and things like that. And then I ended up working for Armando Iannucci because he'd seen a column I'd done with Stephen Wells. And my joke is that he must have thought we were 16-year-old punk rockers. I think he was quite upset when we turned up and we were, you know, big 30-year-old men who looked depressed about life. So, yeah, it's strange because it was a real mixture between the two the comedy and writing about music were always mixed up together in 1991 you joined forces with chris morris and steve coogan for the bbc radio 4 series on the hour looking back how important do you think this show was in testing the ground for some of britain's best loved comedy characters of the last 20 years that's a really good question because a friend of mine called Ian Greaves, who's a comedy historian, says that there's two lines in comedy after the 90s. One is the Vic Reeves, the Matt Lucas line, which goes into, you know, the Mighty Boosh and whatever, even the League of Gentlemen. And it's silly, old-fashioned comedy. It's not intellectual. It doesn't, you know, you don't have to go to university to like it. You don't have to read the papers. The other is pretty much the Chris Morris Armando kind, which is, even though they didn't go to Oxford, it is that old Oxbridge-type comedy where, you know, you do have to know who the foreign secretary is. You have to read the papers. It helps if you've got a degree, maybe. I don't know. But these two strands are quite separate. And the weird thing about On the Hour is in the first episode, you've got Chris Morris and you've got Alan Partridge. And Alan Part because of that strange move, because they got with Steve Coogan. You know, Steve Coogan's unique because I'm rambling a bit. 
because he's kind of part of that world of trendy comedy of Armando world. But also he's an old-fashioned comedian who used to do impressions of, you know, Ronnie Corbett and people like that. But he decided that he didn't want to be a showbiz golfer type. So you've got Steve, as I call him, and you've got Armando and all that lot going forward together. And that's what made it different, I think. And I think when you look at, oh, it's really interesting because you're trying to think what was the influence. You look at things like W1A on television. Yeah, that's from a show called, I think, People Like Us, which was pre-Armando. That's obviously influenced. Then you look at Veep in America, and all of a sudden there's all these shows like House of Cards. So I think Armando's, Armando and Chris are the only people who did that kind of... It's political, but it's not about the government. It's satire, because it's satire about the way government and the civil service works. And it's silly. The thing you people tend not to forget, because they all say, oh, it's just like thick of it, and they always mean, you know... The, government's in trouble but shows like the thick of it are silly they're a bit surreal it's the kind of comedy i really like they're quite daft you know they can be vicious and i don't know if you've seen the death of stalin yet the the film about the death of stalin oddly hence and it's it's a horrible film it's about stalin dying and the power battles but it's also like a monty python film people are running around and falling over or they're being shot in the head and there's horrible moments but it's a silly film and that I don't know if that's the answer to any question, but that is that is what Armando and Chris's legacy is, surrealism and satire. It's sort of a cross between Yes Minister and Monty Python. Sorry, that was a bit of a long answer. That's fine. Why do you think the day-to-day is still cited as such an influential show despite merely running for one series? Yeah. It was very annoying it was only one series. They get Chris and Armando get bored, and Chris gets really bored and it's really annoying when you've got a job. It's like, oh, we're not doing it anymore. Oh, thanks. Only doing one series of On the Hour, one series of The Day to Day, one series of Jam, one series of Blue Jam, one series of, you know, this and that. Um, it's influential because it was a new thing. People have been doing parodies of news shows and current affairs for years, but they were so old and boring. You know, they were like, what is this? But Chris was the first person to sit down and watch Newsnight and learn how Jeremy Paxman talked learn how Michael Burke talked. He hired all the graphics. They hired the people who made the real graphics for Newsnight, which was genius. Before that, it was like, oh, what's this? It's just some silly joke with funny name. But if you, the thing we always used to say was, if you were in the kitchen and it was on in the next room, you'd think it was the real show until they said something like, the horizon is disappearing at the rate of one foot a day, or there are horses in the underground. It's almost, that was the thing. Parody had got lazy. The thing about Chris and Armando was they were great observers and then they made it daft. So, it's, yeah, it's hugely influential. Um, again, because it's the first thing to do what it did. In 1997, you were re- reunited with Chris Morris for Brass Eye. The most obvious question, I suppose, is how did you get all those celebrities to be on camera saying all those ridiculous things? God, because I think the answer is because celebrities will do anything. Because if it's in your genes to be famous, then you will do anything to keep being famous. And what was weird about that was that Chris pushed it as far as possible. You know, it's almost like he'd say, do you... And there are takes of, like, Paul Daniels, God bless his soul, you know, saying, like, would you like me to do it like this? Noel Edmonds going, like, should I do this? They weren't just being tricked. They were wanted to join in. And I was working on a show. This is fairly weird. There was a comedian called Richard Blackwell, and I was working for him for his real programme. 
And he came in one day, he said, God, I've had a weird day. I'm like, what? Because I've been asked to do a safety advert. And I was working on Brass Eye and the penny didn't drop. He said, apparently there's a device you can get for your laptop. And if you're a paedophile, you can send emails to children and they send replies and they touch you up. And everyone in the room was going, what? So to me, it was like, I knew it was real. I trusted Chris anyway. But because you know, somebody had come in and had said, so A, they'll do anything to be famous, even if it's saying something silly like nonsense. And B, they believed it. I think it was a more innocent time. You know, we didn't have the internet. I mean, if someone like Ali G came along now, within two seconds, everyone would go, I saw you on my phone, mate. You're a fake. Then it was a lot easier to trick people because also there was that thing. Now, you know, we talk about fake news and people don't trust journalists. But then people thought, oh, it's the BBC or whoever. You know, it must, Chris must be real. He's posh. That's the other thing. When Chris comes into a room, you believe him because he sounds like a headmaster. You know, he sounds like Jeremy Paxman. If Jeremy Paxman told me to jump out that window, I would. So there is that. Swapping satire for the more shiny world of light entertainment in 2002 for Harry Hill's TV burp, I imagine, added a whole new dimension to your career. In your opinion, what was the secret to that show's success? That was brilliant. I remember getting that job and like, oh, here we go. Funny clips. Harry Hill, he's funny, might work. And then it never ended. We did 10 years on that show. And the reason it worked was the combination of Harry's humour, which was surreal, which hadn't gone mass. You know, it wasn't, he wasn't the biggest star in the world because a lot of people are like, oh, I don't like these silly jokes about badgers and all this kind of thing and Burke Quook. But you add that to the real thing of EastEnders jokes and people going, I've seen EastEnders. So A, you've got people taking the mickey out of EastEnders, but B, takes it to another level, which is mad jokes. You know, when you've got a point, you're watching a bold man in a blazer dancing around a table with a dancer dressed as the, a bust of Queen Victoria, a dancer dressed as the new bust of Queen Victoria, some jelly on a plate and a knitted puppet. And you're thinking, this is all from a joke about EastEnders. And everyone is pissing themselves <clears throat> laughing because it all makes sense. And I, you know, I used to say to people, you could only do Harry Hill's TV burp. You couldn't do, I don't know, Vernon Kay's TV burp or Anton Deck's TV burp because you need the real jokes from the telly and you need Harry Hill's weird, daft sense of humour. I mean, it was a horrible job in some ways because we'd get in and watch tapes. You know, literally, you get up at seven and you'd have to watch EastEnders at half speed, like frame by frame, all day until you went home. But it was the best job in the world. Sometimes you sit in the room and you just go, window goat on Emmerdale, because you've seen a goat at a window, and there'll be a big argument as to whether it was a really tall goat, and that's why you could see it at the window, whether it was a window goat. And we had a huge argument. I remember somebody going, there's no such thing as a window goat. And Harry go, it's a window goat. And I was my joke. And I was going, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, that's why it was a combination of Harry and real TV shows that everyone had seen. Over the last few years, you've become quite a familiar face in your own right on various television documentaries about comedy. Do you think that a writer should remain anonymous? No. Um, only if you're in trouble. Because one way you get work... One thing that's always annoyed me is if you write on a show which has got actor-writers in it, They'll always get more work than you. This is my bitter point of view because people recognise them. So if you, you know, I worked on the Far Show with Simon Day and John Thompson, who wrote their own jokes, and they perform their own jokes. I can't perform my own jokes. I'm not good enough to do that. 
So it's always struck me that if you read, you know, someone like Miranda, Brendan O'Carroll, uh, the woman who did Fleabag, all these people who do their own material, who write it and perform it, it's really smart because everyone recognises you. Whereas you go to a meeting, someone at the BBC, it's like, what have you done? So I'll look it up. You have to loads of things, you know. Got a CV, but if you go in, they go, Miranda, you're so funny, you know. If cab drivers know who you are, you're fine. I mean, it's nice I can get in a taxi and no one cares, but it's. I'd like to go into meetings and people just go mad and throw their arms up in the air with excitement when they see me. Why do you think that comedy writers should be anonymous? Because when he was at university, they always told him that if you wanted to be famous, don't be a writer. <laughs> Yeah, there is all that. There's that old joke about the Hollywood star who was so stupid that she slept with the writer. It's, yeah, it's absolutely true if you want to be famous. And I like it. I mean, I, when I work with fame, I always like being the pick person in the picture. When you see a picture of someone famous at a party and they look really great and I'm stood next to them and it's like famous person and someone else. And I like being the someone else because I don't, you know, I don't get bothered. I don't make all the money, but I don't get bothered and I have a nice job, so. And I think as well, we, we were talking before, weren't we? You know, people in the past, comedy writers, sort of like Ronnie Barker, choosing to become anonymous when they're submitting work. Yeah, because that whole thing of Gerald Wiley, he, that was quite, I mean, I can see why. And it's very, I mean, I'm really, this is a different tack, but I'm obsessed with Stephen King, the horror writer. And it's really interesting that he's got, you know, as you probably know, two sons, Owen King, who doesn't write horror, wrote his own short stories and novels. And the better known one is Joe Hill, who deliberately chose a different name, made sure that nobody knew who he was. And it's really difficult. You know, J.K. Rowling trying to do something different. I mean, it's not, so, but I think that's a slightly different thing. That's because you want to know that you're good. You want to be judged on your own abilities, not your name. Whereas if I... If I was a famous mm. hockey player, I would just say, I'm David Quaddick, the famous hockey player, and get published. But what's interesting about me, nothing. No, I'll start again. Sorry. <laughs> what's interesting about my position is that if I, I always use my own name, if I write one kind of stuff, it doesn't help me in another area. So a few years ago, I wrote these books called the Grumpy Old Men series, which were a cash-in on a more successful Grumpy Old Men. And I thought, great, and they did quite well. I thought, great, now I'll get my novel published. And everyone's like, your novel isn't a comedy book about grumpy old men. So it had absolutely no effect. If you get known for one thing, you can't leave that that bucket. That's not the wrong word. but We interviewed Barry Cryer a couple of months ago, oh, and he was that. saying about how it really helped him being at the windmill because yeah. then he was a comedian before he became a writer, and it almost validated that he was funny before he became a writer. Yeah, confidence is really hard. I mean, I'm really envious of the people who went to Oxbridge and who did that kind of performing thing. You know, anybody who went from from a public school background at my age has got more confidence. So now I'm all right, but yeah, you work when you're a writer, you work on your own, you get a lot of rejection, all these kind of things. So it's very, you know, sometimes I'll get, you know, someone will go, I really like your, your sketch. And I'll go, and, but, what's the but, what's the but? And I'm like, no, I liked it. But, no, there isn't a but. You know, you do, you are insecure when you're a writer. You can get a bit bitter and twisted about things. But 
yeah. If I'd had the nerve to be a stand-up like Barry, a proper comedian, I'd definitely have done that. But then people like me, you know, that's why we sit behind a screen and write. And also, I'm not as good. You know, Barry's great. Barry's so funny. If I was as funny as him, I wouldn't write a word. I just tell parrot jokes. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, I I'm quite vain. You know, I used to like to do acting at school, and I wasn't very good. But I remember when I was in my twenties, Ben Elton, who is a very good writer, but isn't a great stand-up as a speaker, but made himself do it. He hasn't gotten the natural warmth. I don't. I think he'd agree of a lot of stand-ups. He's not the kind of person you go, oh, I want to listen like Peter Kay. We just want to listen to him. But Ben Elton made himself do it because he knew it was a great way to promote himself and to get people to know him. Because if you can be funny in a room, it's much, you know, a piece of paper is never as funny as a person. I have no idea if that's the right answer or not. I'm glad this isn't a quiz. I'd be doing very badly. Looking back at your career, what would you say your proudest achievement is? My proudest achievement? Can I swear? You can. My proudest achievement is that when I used to write with Stephen Wells in a column in NME called Culture Vulture, we used to do lots of insults, and I wrote one. It was a revolting phrase. We called someone a spunk-faced shit-given. And I really liked the line. Mm-hmm. And Stephen liked it as well, and Stephen didn't always like what I wrote, but he liked it. So I kept it in my head, and then I used it in the thick of it. And then I used it in an episode of Veep. We changed spunk-faced. They changed it to something else. But it went out on Veep in America. And this year, Donald Trump insulted some American senator. I think he said, can we get rid of this guy? And a senator did a speech. And he called Donald Trump a shit given. And I am so proud of that. that at some point, a word I invented has gone down in history. I'm also really proud of working with all these great people. So that's nice too. But I'd definitely say insulting Donald Trump by accident is a high point. So what's next for David Quantic? What's next is what's next for every comedy writer, which is trying to get things made. I've, I'm working on some things like documentaries, so it's not all comedy. Trying to get radio shows made and TV shows made. It's all the time, you know, you're just sending ideas out and people get... What's nice now is people get in touch with me to see if I, you know, I can be of use to them. And the nice news is that I wrote, I was skint this year and I panicked. I had an idea for something and I wrote a horror novel in 10 weeks, which is quite a short time and it's coming out next year. So I'm very happy about that because, I mean, that's another thing, you know, it doesn't help being David Quantic to write a horror novel, but, and I'd never really wanted to do it before. Suddenly it's like, well, this is a horror novel. It's, it's the right idea for a horror novel and it worked. And yeah, so I'll keep you posted about that if you like. Yeah, definitely. That's lovely. Thanks very much, Dave. Thank you. Thank you so much. A big thank you to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you like this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy. Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates of forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time for another Beyond the Title interview.